welcome back to another edition of the ASEP Equal Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jason Woods. Today's discussion is with Dr. Adam Ostema from Michigan State University. He's an associate professor of emergency medicine there, and his work focuses on neurologic emergencies and pre-hospital care of stroke. Today, he's talking about the diagnosis of hemorrhagic stroke in the emergency room, techniques for diagnosing it, some common pitfalls, and a general overview of the state of the research. Thanks for being here, Dr. Ostema. So this brief talk is really intended as sort of an introduction to hemorrhagic stroke, a brief review of the pathophysiology and epidemiology, and then we're going to discuss a bit of the diagnostic evaluation and the clinical presentation of hemorrhagic stroke as we think about how to improve the care for these patients in our emergency departments. Hemorrhagic stroke is kind of a funny thing to talk on, I find, because hemorrhagic stroke really is comprised of two fairly different disease entities. Of course, there's intracerebral hemorrhage where the bleeding occurs within the parenchyma of the brain, and there's subarachnoid hemorrhage where the bleeding comes into the CSF from a ruptured aneurysm. And so while there is certainly a lot of overlap between the clinical presentations of these two entities, they are somewhat different. And so that stems from their pathophysiology. Intracerebral hemorrhage most commonly arises in the setting of hypertensive angiopathy. So changes in the microvasculature, the smaller blood vessels of the brain that are the result of longstanding hypertension then lead to the bleed. And then the actual symptoms of intracerebral hemorrhage are driven mostly by compression of the local neurons. Uh, And of course, there's other things that can lead to bleeding within the brain as well and would still fall under this banner, although much less commonly. On the other hand, subarachnoid hemorrhage is a disease that is almost always the result of the rupture of a cerebral aneurysm, which can be present in various parts of the cerebrovascular circulation. And the pathophysiology of this looks much more like meningeal inflammation or irritation, at least in the early phases. Now, sometimes these ruptures occur in the setting of some provocative event of exertion. But most of the time, rupture is a fairly spontaneous event. And of course, not all subarachnoid hemorrhages arise from an identifiable aneurysm. There are these perimesencephalic bleeds that are, although uncommon, also potentially can present in a similar manner and tend to have a much more benign disease course. So in briefly reviewing the epidemiology of these two conditions, just broadly thinking of stroke, these hemorrhagic strokes obviously represent the minority situation. So of all strokes that occur, only about 15% of them actually fall into the category of hemorrhagic strokes. And as you can see, almost three to one intracerebral hemorrhages are more common than the subarachnoid hemorrhages are. And if we sort of take a step back and think about all patients showing up in the emergency department, of course, this represents a relatively small sample of patients that we see. So, you know, maybe on the order of a percent or two of our total cases might be stroke cases. And of those, obviously, an even smaller percentage are the hemorrhagic strokes. So I think it's one of the reasons why it's important to focus on this in thinking about CME and studying and creating processes because it's not something that most of us are going to see on a regular enough basis to have it feel old hat. The incidence of hemorrhagic stroke is actually pretty static uh, over time. We've seen some improvements in the incidence of ischemic stroke. This is data out of Corpus Christi, I think. And there was a suggestion that perhaps in older folks, the incidence of hemorrhagic stroke had a little bit of a downward trend. But overall, the data would suggest that this is a fairly stable entity over time, whereas ischemic strokes do seem to be improving. I don't want to dwell too much on the risk factors for these diseases because in the ER, it's either there or it's not. But for what it's worth, there's a lot of overlap between the risk factors for these two conditions. There are a few nuances to that. The intracerebral hemorrhage population there seems to be a much closer relationship to age. As we age, our risk of this disease increases steadily, whereas the subarachnoid hemorrhage incidence is a little bit more bow-shaped. 
and tends to focus in what I increasingly like to call late middle age. In the uh, intracerebral hemorrhage population, there's also a closer relationship to race, particularly Asians seem to be at higher risk. It's unclear if that's driven more by hypertension or if that's driven by other factors. As far as preventable medical conditions, hypertension is the one commonality to both of these diseases that's probably the strongest modifiable or predictable uh, risk factor. For subarachnoid hemorrhage, cigarette smoking seems a little bit of a stronger relationship as well. So just to illustrate that further, this is a big systematic review that's getting pretty old now, but I think illustrates nicely. If you look on the right-hand side of the screen, the incidence ratio of intracerebral hemorrhage by decade of life increases quite steadily. And from that same systematic review, this is just a breakdown of the incidence of intracerebral hemorrhage by race. And you can see that there is certainly kind of an outlier dot for the Asian population, but the magnitude of that effect is really not huge. A more recent cohort study that looked at the risk factors for subarachnoid hemorrhage just illustrate kind of the general principle that subarachnoid hemorrhages are more likely to rupture as blood pressures increase. And likewise, there is a female preponderance of subarachnoid hemorrhage, both in terms of aneurysm development and aneurysm rupture, although that seems to be weighted toward older females, probably greater than age 50 or 55. Uh, and of course, smoking, especially current smoking, seems to be a risk factor for both. So getting into more of the meat of the clinical presentation of these two entities, I'm going to talk about them a little bit more separately. And so the first thing I wanted to do is just kind of draw some contrast between the presentation of hemorrhagic strokes as compared to the presentation of ischemic strokes. And as I have no doubt many of you are aware, there really is no clinical physical exam finding or other feature that can be used to distinguish these two entities without imaging. There are some certain factors that tend to increase the likelihood of hemorrhagic stroke as compared to ischemic stroke and seizures at the time of onset, presence of vomiting, uh, headache as well as some physical exam findings such as neck stiffness or the presence of coma, certainly increase the likelihood of a given patient with neurological symptoms being a hemorrhagic stroke. But as you see, the negative likelihood ratios, they really aren't enough to differentiate definitively. So they increase your dander a little bit, but they don't necessarily dictate what you're dealing with. Can you just help clarify for me how you deal with the presence of a seizure operationally in the emergency department? You said that seizure has the highest likelihood ratio for hemorrhagic stroke, but seizures are quite common. So how do you actually deal with them in practice when you've got a patient with known epilepsy or alcohol use disorder or some other factor that might have caused the seizure, but you're not sure? Is the presence of seizure something you can really use to decide your workup or not? Yeah, thank you. I think that's a really good question. I think one of the harder clinical presentations to sort out is perhaps somebody who comes in immediately following a seizure, especially if the history of seizures isn't clear. Obviously, if somebody has a long-standing history of seizures and you can confirm that, then my concern for stroke and so forth is much, much lower. And in general, I think the recommendations are probably to avoid imaging in that scenario, barring some new deficit. Seizure plus prolonged postictal phase failure to wake up or a focal neurological deficit, I think is a little trickier. Even in the presence of a history, when there's a focal neurological deficit, my presumption is that's a stroke and I pursue imaging. And if we find out if it's Todd's paralysis, then so be it. 
On the other hand, if a patient comes in and they are, they've just suffered a seizure and maybe they're having a prolonged wake up, then deciding when to pull the trigger on a stroke workup, I think is a challenging question, especially since a lot of these patients may get, say, Versed or something from EMS before arriving in the emergency department. And so when I'm trying to assess that, my best hope is usually to try to get some kind of symmetric movement out of them. But when in doubt, I tend to image those individuals earlier so that I don't miss that patient who's actually had a seizure that's masking or clouding the picture of a true stroke presentation. I think that's probably not the time to preserve those resources. Thinking about the presentation of intracerebral hemorrhage, I guess the ways that I think of this disease process are sort of divided into two things. The first is the the symptoms that are generated are kind of proportional to the size of the bleed. In smaller bleeds, there is a tendency to just maybe have some focal neurological deficits that might easily be uh, identical to those that you would see in ischemic stroke. The bigger the bleed, the more the headache and vomiting symptomatology increases. And of course, either through compression of the brainstem or just the size of the bleed and resultant hydrocephalus, changes in mental status and coma can result. And the other thing is hemorrhagic stroke has a tendency to evolve over time, progress over time, and that sort of makes physiological sense. But as opposed to the ischemic strokes that may be more abrupt, there tends to be a bit more of a fluctuating course. And that was actually illustrated in what may be the first real comprehensive stroke registry from Switzerland long ago. But This slide I threw in here only to illustrate that they divided the patients in their stroke registry into those with cerebral hemorrhage and those with ischemic stroke. And if you look at the time course of the deficit, over half of the patients in their registry had kind of a progressive course rather than a sudden and single onset of their neurological problem as compared to especially ischemic stroke from cerebral embolus, which is almost always immediate and abrupt course. And the other thing it illustrates is that the relative prevalence of somnolence and coma is way higher in the hemorrhagic stroke population as compared to the ischemic stroke population. But what is the exact symptom that you see is going to be dependent a lot on where the bleed happens to occur. And so bleeds can occur in just about anywhere in the brain. Relatively uncommonly, bleeds can occur in a subcortical location. And then really the presentation is more or less indistinguishable from just a small ischemic stroke in that area. On the other hand, the vast majority of these bleeds tend to occur in the deep brain, and depending on where in the deep brain and how big that bleed is, any combination of hemiplegia, visual disturbances, cranial nerve deficits can occur, and particularly as the bleeds get larger and maybe compress the third ventricle a little bit, it's not uncommon that the headache and vomiting symptoms will become particularly prominent for these patients, and of course, as they get big enough, we get into more of coma and stupor. So there's a broad range of symptoms that might end indicate a deep brain bleed. I want to just briefly highlight bleeds within the cerebellum are perhaps one of the more tricky things for us as emergency physicians because they may present subtly as do posterior fossa ischemic strokes. But if that bleed continues or the vasogenic edema becomes prominent, those can cause an obstructive hydrocephalus by pushing on the brainstem and the cerebral aqueduct. And so these patients may have a severe problem, but it may not be present initially. It may take hours or even a day for those kinds of symptoms to show up. And then, of course, bleeding within the brainstem itself is kind of a disastrous problem that typically is disastrous very early on. And so switching gears a little bit to talk more about the presentation of subarachnoid hemorrhage, most of what I'm going to say here is something that's readily known to just about anybody who's listening, but I think a nice summary of the presentation of subarachnoid hemorrhage comes out of the papers that were published by Jeffrey Perry and Ian Steele in the development of their subarachnoid hemorrhage rule. And so this is from one of those papers that just gives a breakdown of the relative prevalence of different kind of classic 
subarachnoid hemorrhage symptoms in the population of people who actually had the disease. And so the vast majority of individuals will describe the headache as being severe and probably the worst of their life. This idea of a thunderclap headache or a headache that peaks within a minute is also heavily prevalent in that community. I think the actual median time from onset of symptoms to peak headache for the subarachnoid population was like 30 seconds. So certainly that is in keeping with what we would expect from the pathophysiology. Vomiting tends to be prominent. And then when we compare these things to the patients in the study who had bad headaches, but they didn't have a subarachnoid hemorrhage, the worst headache of the life, although it was significantly different, even among patients who didn't have a subarachnoid hemorrhage, 80% of them made that same comment. And that certainly jives with my clinical experience that those words don't seem to help me differentiate very well. The thunderclap headache was a little more of a spread, 84% of those who had a subarachnoid hemorrhage had it, but only 61% of those who didn't. Perhaps maybe the biggest differentiator was the neck stiffness. You know, 75% of people with a subarachnoid hemorrhage had subjective neck stiffness or stiffness on exam, whereas only about 33% of those without subarachnoid hemorrhage did. Moving on then to talk about how we work these patients up, I wanted to just briefly highlight that there is a fairly consistent non-zero miss rate for both these conditions. This data happens to talk about stroke in general, and in the initial presentation, somewhere around 3 to 4% of individuals who present with stroke are missed. And those tend to be people with minor symptoms, posterior fossa symptoms. There's a variety of reasons why that happens, but it's pretty constant over time. And for subarachnoid hemorrhage, a similar thing can be observed, and it tends to be the patients with the less obvious, the less severe presentations that slip through the cracks. In both cases, I think there's great risk for harm. And actually, there was just a study published not long ago that looked at a cohort of patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage and found that there was a pretty strong relationship between missing the diagnosis and a bad outcome. You see down at the bottom here, if we look at the odds ratio in their adjusted model, after accounting for a lot of things that might make a person do poorly, the misdiagnosis was one of the strongest predictors of a patient winding up with a bad outcome. And it just underscores why our job is important and maybe it's sometimes difficult. Uh, of these two entities, I think the subarachnoid hemorrhage is the trickier one because we are searching for that needle in the haystack to a greater degree than we are when we take a patient who's got a neurological deficit of some kind or a new onset coma. In the presentation of a person, I think the things that are most useful to me are not only the severity of the headache, the abruptness of its onset, but also, you know, I certainly try to take into account previous history. In the study that I just referred to by Perry and Steele, there was an exclusion criteria in their study that basically said anybody who'd had three prior headaches that were kind of similar was automatically off the table. And so I find like Rather than asking patients, if is this the worst headache you've ever had, I generally like to phrase it as, when is the last time you had a headache that was this severe? And for those individuals who have absolutely no history, my worry quotient goes up quite a bit. The next stiffness thing I think is really useful, and I do uh, try to elicit that. I also look for things like photophobia, which really didn't shake out for them to be very useful. For those really gray area cases, I do think vomiting is kind of useful as well. People with lots of vomiting, just I don't usually see that so much in the migraineurs. But I think sort of prior episodes of headache, presence of neck stiffness and other sort of ancillary symptoms that seem severe are things that I use to help me ferret out who is the person I should be getting that CAT scan on. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that as we move through the talk. So in the early evaluation of somebody coming in with a suspected stroke, 
Obviously, the first component of our evaluation is always going to revolve around the ABCs and that initial assessment of their stability. And this is a population, especially the intracerebral hemorrhage uh, portion of the population, that may well require something like airway control or at least some acute stabilization before we can get a definitive answer as to what's going on. But to the extent that history can be collected, the time of onset, the presence of anticoagulants are probably on the top of my list of questions when I'm assessing these patients. And I move very quickly into just that primary survey. And then all recommendations around this really emphasize the use of a structured neuro exam. So obviously the NIH stroke score is something we use regularly for ischemic stroke, but it is used less frequently in the hemorrhagic stroke population, at least based on stroke registry data. And yet it is a very useful way to not only get a global sense of how sick a patient might be, but it has prognostic significance both in the short and long term, and it makes conversations with specialists more easily. So definitely pursue a numerical structured neuro exam, such as NIH stroke scale if the patient is able to cooperate, or the Glasgow coma scale if they are too obtunded to participate. Laboratory evaluation obviously is not anything too special, but the crux of this decision-making really boils down to imaging. As I said before, we really can't distinguish the ischemic from the hemorrhagic strokes by their clinical factors alone. And so imaging becomes necessary not only to make the diagnosis, but the speed of imaging is important for getting the right sort of treatment quickly. And so the CAT scan is really the cornerstone of ED imaging. By far, it is the most common modality that is employed, although there is probably a role for MRI in centers that can obtain one with the same degree of rapidity. Uh, but I think most of us rely on CAT scans for the bulk of this. And of course, there's guideline uh, recommendations that support the use of CAT scan early in the course of a suspected subarachnoid hemorrhage. And so the AHA and some now getting pretty old recommendations gave it a class one recommendation. The American College of Radiologists uses appropriateness scores for various imaging modalities that range from one to nine, nine being the most appropriate. And so we have a top rating recommendation from them. And for intracerebral hemorrhage, basically the same thing. For uh, intracerebral hemorrhage, there may be some additional value that one can get from an MRI in centers where that is plausible or where that is routine. And so it's certainly an acceptable alternative, which is why the ACR listed this as an appropriate race of eight to nine. So as I said, that early recognition is key, first of all, because they might be an ischemic stroke and maybe you need to head down an interventional pathway for those patients. But another thing that is important to note about hemorrhagic stroke in general, and especially intracerebral hemorrhage, is that that clinical progression is a big deal. Early deterioration is a common thing. Uh, there was one observational study that found that 22% of the ICH patients that were transported by EMS deteriorated while they were being transported, which, as we all know, is not a terribly long period of time. And almost the same proportion of people, once they hit the ED door, will deteriorate before they get out of the ED. So this early diagnosis not only allows you to begin whatever interventions you might be undertaking, but also get the ball rolling on moving them to an ICU or transferring them to another hospital. And what evidence exists out there to suggest how to do this quickly is really pegged more to how we've approached kind of the ischemic stroke pathway with having stroke teams. And there was actually just a very recent paper published that I thought was apropos to our discussion that just broke down their hemorrhagic stroke patients into those who had the regular stroke code process and those that somehow got outside of their stroke code process. And in this paper, at least, there were pretty substantial benefits to those individuals who went through the process. So having robust screening mechanisms for triage and for your pre-hospital providers to notify and activate stroke teams probably will be your best bet at getting a rapid diagnosis. So for intracerebral hemorrhage and patients who present with an acute neurological deficit, CT scan is pretty much it. We're going to be getting imaging. But for that headache population we were talking about, 
where the vast majority of people who have even a severe headache, even a thunderclap headache, do not have a subarachnoid hemorrhage, it is reasonable to start to think more critically about who and how we are working people up, especially as we think about saving resources and avoiding radiation. And so the uh, group that I referred to earlier with Ian Steele and Jeffrey Perry have done quite a bit of work developing this Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule. They did a derivation study, a couple of validation studies, and now most recently, a impact study on the use of this decision rule. And it really kind of amounts to a PERC rule for headache. If you meet these six uh, clinical criteria, then the probability that you have a subarachnoid hemorrhage as an explanation for your headache is very, very low. The sensitivity is consistently near 100% with confidence intervals that are 95 plus percent, so about as good as anything we do with imaging anyway. Of course, the specificity is not so great. Just the presence of one of these things, as you can imagine, doesn't dictate that you actually have the disease. So the ultimate impact of this is going to be dependent on how many people we can actually get to meet all six of these criteria. But the ASAP clinical policy on headache that was published last year did give a level B recommendation that this is a reasonable approach to ruling out subarachnoid hemorrhage on clinical grounds in patients who present to the ED with an acute headache. A second question is, if we don't meet those criteria, if we do get into getting a head C as we've all experienced, a good proportion of those head CTs are negative, and what do you do next? So obviously, everyone's familiar with CT and LP as kind of the standard protocol for ruling out subarachnoid hemorrhage. It's time-tested, it's extremely sensitive, that works and continues to be recommended. But as I have no doubt you are also aware, in the last few decades, there has been increasing scrutiny of the sensitivity of CT. And anyone who'd like a nice review, Chris Carpenter wrote a very extensive systematic review on the various testing modalities around subarachnoid hemorrhage. And that paper not only confirmed that early in the course of a subarachnoid hemorrhage, the sensitivity is very, very high. The negative likelihood ratio of a negative CT in that setting is so low that it would take a very high pretest probability to justify pursuing further workup. And so again, the ASEP clinical policy on headache does give a level B endorsement that in the setting of an acute headache that has presented within six hours, a negative head CT is adequate to rule out non-traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage. Of course, there is some non-zero miss rate there that we still have to think about. And so there are probably individual situations where your pretest probability or your concern is so high that you should still pursue further workup. But for most patients in my practice, I do rely on this when my clinical suspicion is low. Beyond six hours, it's a little bit more of a gray area. We know the sensitivity of CT falls off fairly progressively over the first 24 hours, but within first 12 is probably still fairly sensitive. We also know that LP is not only invasive and uncomfortable, but time-consuming and potentially has either misleading or inconclusive results. And so there has been increased attention and interest in potentially screening patients for CTA, which is very sensitive for identifying aneurysms. And so as of yet, the literature really has not provided definitive evidence as to whether or not this is equally acceptable to the traditional LP pathway. There are some potential advantages in terms of eliminating the risk associated with LP, but some disadvantages in terms of perhaps identifying incidental aneurysms. Certainly the costs of the testing and radiation associated with that test are of concern as well. And so this is an area where I think the uh, literature has not yet given us an answer. And so I think ASAP has appropriately granted it level C recommendation, meaning possibly consider, but not necessarily fully endorsed. All right. And that is where we are going to have to leave off from this fantastic lecture. Thank you, Dr. Ostema, for being here. That was a lovely review of what literature exists right now and some tips on how to diagnose hemorrhagic stroke. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here.
I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find the rest of the ASEP Equal Partnership with Academic Life in Emergency Medicine at the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine website, www.aliem.com. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at jasonwoodsmd at gmail.com. Thanks for listening today. We'll have another episode for you next week.